say hi to about 20 people. Give them a handshake or a hug or a high five. Say what's up. All right, let's do it. Grab your seats. This is like really weird because it's light in here. You know what I'm saying? Like this feels like totally different. I guess it's the sun, equinox, you know, according to the equators and all those things. Great to have you guys here tonight. How you doing? You doing well? We need to hurry because we have two, uh, two passages to get through tonight. So a lot to kind of cram in uh, one evening. But we're, we're doing this tonight for a very specific reason. And just to kind of get us in, context is key. I hear Matthias' lot. We're studying verse by verse through the great and wonderful gospel of Luke. Can you guys just give it up for Dr. Luke? Come on now. Yep. He's quite a stud, we've learned. He uh, writes very uh, articulately. Uh, he's an enjoyable guy to read, an enjoyable guy to listen to. And uh, he's writing to a man named Theophilus who is a Gentile. Uh, um, and this is important tonight. Because tonight we're going to be wrestling with and dealing with a topic that a few months back was kind of at its height. Because Luke is constantly talking about it. To Luke, almost more than any other gospel, the idea of the kingdom of God is central. It almost dominates his gospel. And if you were here with us a few months back, uh, you saw uh, this window. And there was actually another window that we used as well. This, this window that was over here, we used to represent what Ephesians called the kingdom of the air or the kingdom of Satan, which has rule and dominion over this earth until Jesus comes back and takes his heel and slices the head of the serpent. Are you guys ready for that day? What a beautiful day that's going to be. And, and yeah, and this window represented the kingdom of God, the great kingdom of God that is eternal, that's everlasting, that's beautiful. And what we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, thankfully, is that he paints a crystal clear picture through the teachings of Jesus of what the kingdom of God looks like and what the kingdom of the air looks like tonight. In two verses, a fundamental shift of Christian thinking, I hope, I believe, as I've studied for tonight and as I've looked, as I've searched the Scriptures and allowed God to change my heart, a literal fundamental shift of thinking tonight. So first of all, what we need to do is we're going to look at 12 passages. If you have a pen, tonight's a great night to, to take notes. A lot of Scriptures, a lot of content. Tonight is a lot of teaching. And so I hope that you're ready to get engaged in this. But we're going to go through 12 passages where Luke has hit, hammered, taught on the kingdom so that we can get and refresh our memories of exactly what Luke says the kingdom is. First passage, put this up for me. Passage number one here. Uh, this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. This is the very first mention of the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The word says, his kingdom will never end. We've already said the kingdom of the air, the kingdom of Satan. His reign over this earth has an end. But the kingdom of God, the great reign and rule of Jesus, King Jesus, has no end. It's eternal. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I was a kid, I was always like, um, Mom and Dad, like, it's going to be crazy to live forever. You know what I mean? Have you, do you guys ever have these thoughts? Because everything in our life has an end. You know what I mean? You put a tombstone pizza in, it's going to be over for me. It's going to be burnt. You know what I mean? A game has an end. Uh, uh, this worship gathering will have an end. Everything has an end. Can you imagine? Our, our minds can't even fathom something that has no end. Like I lay in bed and I'm just like, that's kind of going to be kind of weird. You know what I mean? In like an amazing way, right? Because we won't even be thinking about it because we'll be consumed with the worship of a creator. 
Uh, sorry for that commercial break. Next pa- did you already put the next passage up? Uh, apparently you did. Uh, Luke chapter 4 says this in verse 43. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And this is Jesus. Now, uh, call me Captain Obvious here. But if Jesus said that he was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, I'm pretty sure that we should understand what it means to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Amen? Tonight, this passage, this passage is one of the fundamental shifts that I hope happens. We're going to learn tonight what it means to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I think we've brought in here a lot of preconceived notions and ideas about what that is tonight. A fundamental shift. Next slide. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom's eternal. It's why Jesus was sent. And he said, Blessed are the poor. In another place in Matthew, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. That there's this correlation between humility and almost receiving the kingdom. We'll get into this later as well. Next, uh, next slide. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 says this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. I love this about Jesus. He's consistent. He doesn't just say it's good to do something. We see Him through the Scriptures doing it. Okay? And not just doing it, but God through Luke writing that He did it. So this idea of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God is central to the ministry of Jesus. Next slide. Uh, Just a few verses later in Luke chapter 8. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. We spent a long time wrestling with this passage. You guys remember this? This was like some seven months ago. Like, what does this mean? Well, it means that to some, their eyes and hearts and scales will come off and they will understand. And Jesus is saying there will be others that will not. The kingdom of God, the mystery of it, because it is a mystery, will be open to some and to others. It will be foolishness, Scripture says. Next slide. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, look at this, I love this. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to what? To preach the kingdom and to what? And to heal the sick. So Jesus is doing it. And not just is Jesus preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, but He's calling His disciples to do it as well. Later at the end of the uh, book of Matthew, He says, Go ye therefore and and make disciples of everyone, right? Of all nations. So it's, it's all of our calls to make disciples. It's all of our call then to what? Preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So we better know what that is. Amen? Next slide. Uh, just a little bit later in Luke 9. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I remember, the, uh, you guys remember this passage? Yeah. Jason had, he had the big old plow up here. Or it was actually at the high school. You guys remember that? Sat on the stage. I remember that like it was yesterday. That was a, dude, that was a money teaching, man. I love that one. Slayed face. Ripped my face apart that night. I love that. But, but on, on that particular night, sorry, we, we like to encourage one another. You know, even publicly sometimes. It's great. Um, the idea here is that, is that anyone who turns back isn't fit for service. So apparently there's a service aspect as well to the kingdom of God, right? We'll, we'll get more into that here in a little bit. Luke chapter 10, verse 8. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Uh, he's telling the 72 this. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. And like, like what, is, what is that? What does that mean? Instantly, like a, you have a lot of preconceived notions, right? Even when we taught this, I feel like we, we had some idea of what this means tonight. 
I hope, clarity. Uh, next slide. Uh, I love this. This is Jesus teaching the disciples, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. When he says this, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. In the very prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray, they were to pray that the kingdom of God would, would come. Now, we're going to get in to this idea tonight of what the kingdom means when it's fulfilled and not yet consummated. We're going get, to get into it here in this, I think, I think it's the next verse. Um, actually, it's two verses from now, but stay here. Go, go back, go back. Um, Luke 11, verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And this is key. If I drive out demons, if I show authority over demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come to you. Uh, next slide. But seek first, or, or, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And another gospel says, seek first the kingdom. So the kingdom is supposed to be something that we're seeking, that we're going after, that we're yearning for. And last slide, Luke 13, look at this. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? A rhetorical question that he answers. What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. This is the idea. That the kingdom of God comes in King Jesus. It's fulfilled. We've talked about before two waiting room periods, okay? We have the first waiting room period from the fall, from the curse in Genesis chapter 3, to the coming of Christ. It's this entire waiting room period. Jesus comes, He dies, He's resurrected, and we move, which we're in now, the second waiting room period, waiting for Christ's second return. So, the kingdom comes in the person of Christ. It's fulfilled, but it's not yet consummated. Because the kingdom will come again when Jesus comes again. We'll talk more about this. Now, I need you guys to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, uh, verse 20. Those are a spattering of what Luke describes the kingdom of God to be. Tonight, two verses that help our understanding, that shape uh, our teaching, hopefully. Verse 20, it's also on the mega screen behind me. Uh, Verse 20, once having been asked by the Pharisees, When the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. The Pharisees, despite asking many questions through the Gospels that are bunk, right? That are almost stupid, that are trying to put Jesus in some type of test. This is a legitimate question. Why? Because every Jew is waiting for the kingdom to come. You'll remember John the Baptist sending his disciples to who? To Jesus to say, hey, are you really the one? Even John the Baptist is struggling with this idea of, did the kingdom come with you? Are you the one? So if John the Baptist has the right to ask the question, then I'm pretty sure even the often lackluster testing Pharisees have the right to say, Jesus has the kingdom come. Everyone's waiting. Pharisees too. Problem is, the Pharisees, of, the Pharisees' idea of the kingdom is 1-800-BUNK. You know what I mean? Which international number, you know? Their idea of the kingdom is totally political. We've talked about this before. The Pharisees expected the kingdom to come through Christ and Christ with two jumbo bazookas on top of his shoulders. Do you carry a bazooka on top of your shoulders? 
grenade launcher, you know, whatever. Something big that can do a lot of destruction. That he comes down from heaven and he just like starts pinpointing Romans, you know. He's sniping out from the hill, just from the Mount of Olives. Jesus just taking out all the Romans, you know. That was their picture. Political frenzy. Political overtaking. The problem is the kingdom of God isn't political by nature. It's spiritual by nature. And so if you're a Pharisee and if you're looking for a political frenzy, for a political overtaking, and here comes King Jesus, which is talking about the kingdom of God and it being something, something more, something spiritual, then can you understand how you'd miss it, right? Yeah, yeah. Secondly, they thought that the kingdom was Jewish. The Pharisees at the core of themselves thought that the kingdom of God was going to come for the Jews. Problem is... Uh, When Jesus was uh, sharing with us the parable of the great banquet, you remember this? He's talking to the Pharisees, and he invites three Pharisees, and guess what all of them do? They all give excuses of why they can't come. Then what what does Jesus do in the parable? He's talking about the master. The master's like, all right, servant, here's what you need to do. Go out and invite the lame, the crippled, the poor, and the blind. Bring them in, because they'll be willing. Over and over and over, we're seeing that the kingdom of God is universal. It's not just Jew, it's Gentile, it's Greek, it's the ends of the earth. And so, if you're a Pharisee and Jesus answers your question about what the kingdom of God is, you're still going to look through the lens of how you've made up your mind. Does that make sense? They're already waiting to hear the answer, political and Jewish. And Jesus keeps teaching universal and he keeps teaching that this thing is spiritual. So tonight, right, we have a lot of preconceived ideas about what Christianity is. About what we're supposed to talk like and look like and sing like, worship like. We've kind of taught each other, haven't we, in a lot of ways, how to act like Christians. So is it possible before we even go on tonight, like the Pharisees, that to really hear this teaching tonight, to really dive into the scriptures, that our nature will be to hear this passage, how we've already slanted our mind. That we'll hear it, and we're already, we're already thinking Jewish, kind of. Or we're already thinking political, kind of, in our own way. And so when we hear this tonight, it's like we already have our own agenda. Is it possible that we could pray right now for God just to clear our minds and clear our hearts and to teach us anew? Is that possible? Would you guys mind just praying with me? Because I really believe that prayer for God to change our hearts tonight could take the Pharisee out of us just for a little bit so that we could really hear from God. Let's pray. God, we just ask that this slant towards whatever it is that you'd want to, uh, whatever it is that we want to hear it as, that you'll kind of take that away. God, that you'll just wipe our heart clean, that we can hear from you anew tonight, that we can see from you anew, that we can learn from you anew. God, I pray that you'll take the Pharisee out of us. God, and I pray that you will answer this great question in your holy and awesome name. Amen. Jesus then tells him, funny, and I love this, it's not going to come with careful observation. Don't you love that? Because the Pharisees of all people have been waiting, and and, and the Greek here like implies spying, right? Uh, You guys were kids. You guys remember uh, waiting on your your Christmas presents? You know what I mean? You're kind of like spying all around the house. For me and my grandparents, I knew it bought me this big red fire truck. Any of you boys into fire trucks when you were younger? Okay, cool. Me and Miles. Really? Like none of you guys like fire trucks? It's kind of surprising that I like the fire truck, but 
But like, I was so interested in this one thing that that's all I could think about. And so that's all I would look for. That's all I would look for. The Pharisees are just like that. And then Jesus says, it's not going to come with your careful observation, with your spying around. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to me than how Jesus did come. Can I remind you? Through a teenage virgin. Through a Holy Spirit implanted birth. Through a long journey on a smelly animal. Alright? In a trough. Friends. With animals and smells and noises. King Jesus did not come with careful observation. Let me tell you this. His second coming, oh, Scripture gives us a little bit of an indication of what that will look like, but His first coming, a lowly manger, friends. And so already we get this picture that the King Jesus has come to reveal His kingdom in a way that is completely different than anyone has been looking for, than anyone that has been waiting for, and to me, completely legitimizes His coming. If He comes just how everyone is expecting... Do you, like, like there, there's kind of a, it's kind of a letdown. It's kind of like we, like we knew that, that that's what it would be. No, he comes, King Jesus, in a manger with smelly animals, the Savior, the King of the universe, sitting there in the stall. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? That's how King Jesus came. Now, in verse 21, you're like, boy, this this is going pretty fast. Verse 21 will not go that fast. Verse 21 says this: Nor will people say, "Here it is." Or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Whoa. Now you can see, like, the first time I read this, I just stopped there. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, check please. Like, what was that? The kingdom of God is within you. Now, it's interesting before we get there, that here in a couple verses, and Jason's going to tag team this, and he's going to teach it next week, the, the rest of this passage on the kingdom of God. But he moves this idea of there it is or here it is. And he warns people here in just a couple of verses that soon it will be there he is or here he is. And so it moves from this it idea to a he. Now, the kingdom of God is within you. Unfortunately, the NIV, the New International Version, does not get this right. Through all the research that I did and all the looking that I did... Uh, there's a Greek phrase here that's called intos hymon. Now, intos hymon can be interpreted three different ways, okay? It can be interpreted in your reach, in your midst, or in your heart, or within you. Okay, the NIV took it and said that the kingdom of God is within you. Problem is, he's talking to who? He's talking to the Pharisees. Has Jesus ever told the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is within them, right? No. So it's not consistent. In just about every other translation of the Bible, the Scripture says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Is in your midst. Now, to truly understand what he's saying here, we have to define some terms. I'll put up the dictionary definition here of kingdom. Um, the first, if you look in the dictionary, the very first definition of the word kingdom says this. A state or monarchy the head of which is a king. So uh, we take the United States. That's where we live, right? You take the United States, and that's a state or a monarchy, and the head of which, I know we don't have a king per se, all right? But George W. Bush, this idea of the dictionary would be that, you know, this kind of mesh between the land and the king, that that's 
the kingdom. Second definition says this. The people belonging to a given realm. So the dictionary says it's either a state or that it's the people living in the state and that's the kingdom. Problem is, there's this Old Testament word for kingdom called Malkuth. Now, Malkuth and the New Testament word for kingdom, Basilia, could you put this, uh, these up for me? All right, both of these words have the exact same meaning. And the meaning is this. Put up the definition there for me. Rank, authority, and sovereignty exercised by a king. Rank, authority, sovereignty exercised by a king. Can we agree? Way different from a state with the king over it or the people in which the kingdom is. Scripturally, the kingdom is authority. The kingdom is sovereignty in which a king has the right to exercise. Now all of a sudden when you begin to piece all of these things together and we put them back in the verse that we just read, it would read something like this. Rank, authority, and sovereignty exercised by a king that is in your midst. Whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Way different than the kingdom of God is within you. All of a sudden we go from the kingdom of God within you to rank, authority, sovereignty is in your midst, Pharisees. In other words, King Jesus, ruler, reigner, sustainer, sovereign God is in your midst. He's right here. Now, George Ladd wrote a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And he says this, A reign without a realm in which it is exercised is meaningless. A reign without a realm in which it is exercised is meaningless. Stay with me. Psalm 103. Put this up. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over what? Rules over all. A reign without a realm in which it can be, right, is meaningless. Psalm 103 says that His kingdom rules over what? Over all. A piece of that. A sample of that all is our hearts. You and I. His rule. His reign. His sovereignty over the earth, yes. And over our life, yes. But I I thought we just said that it's not within you, right? I thought we just like changed that whole definition from Luke that that it's the kingdom of God. Well, yeah, we kind of like changed, yeah, in that verse. But check out this verse in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not yet receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There will be those who are His own. In this case, I think often the passage is talking about Jews who will not receive Him. But to those who do receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Uh, put, put up the next passage for me. Now look at this. This is beautiful. Mark ten fifteen. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. In both of these verses... The word receive is the Greek word dekomai. 
to decomize something is to accept it, is to receive it when it's offered. So all of a sudden, we go from this idea of the kingdom of God being the rule, reign, authority of King Jesus to something that you and I can receive. In fact, when we receive it, like little children, Scripture says that if we don't do that, that it would be a bad thing. So all of a sudden, this idea of the kingdom of God goes from something out here to something in here, something deep within. And friends, it's within. It's what He's doing in us where the kingdom of God all of a sudden begins to take shape, to take form. When Jesus says, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, what is He saying now? Is it a state? Is it the church? Is it the people? Let me tell you this. The kingdom of God is not the church. The kingdom of God created the church. The kingdom of God will use the church as its instrument. But the church is not the kingdom of God. Many of us have perceived the kingdom's growth to be the church's growth, my friends. That's not the case. That's not the case. When he said, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, this is why I was sent, what is he saying? I've come to talk about my rule and my reign and my sovereignty on this earth, here and now, in your life, here and now. Then, he told the disciples, go and preach the message of the kingdom of God. Go out, heal the sick, tell people people about the kingdom. What is he saying? He's saying, tell them about my authority, about my rule, about my sovereign plan. We've got Savior Jesus down pat, don't we? What I mean by that is, it's very easy for us to talk about a Jesus on a cross, and it should be. The grace and mercy of Christ. It's very easy to talk about a Savior Jesus. What I'm proposing to you tonight is fundamentally, we're communicating Savior Jesus We're claiming Savior Jesus and need to be. But we never get to Lord Jesus, to King Jesus. At the very core of why Jesus said He came. He said, I have come to tell people about my rule and reign. And what you're hearing coming out of you and I's mouth is His mercy and His grace is sufficient. And it is. But what about When you receive Him, what you're receiving is His rule and reign over your life. And now all of a sudden, the language starts to shift. Now all of a sudden we've gone from, yeah, yeah, like give me that Jesus. It's like the, it's like the, you know, the the Build-A-Bear Jesus kind of. You guys remember in the 90s, right? Oh, you guys remember that? How many of you guys lived in the 90s? Yeah. Awesome. I I knew we were a young church, but not that young, I was thinking, you know, the... All right, we got a bunch of eight-year-olds in here. Sweet, you know, yeah. There was this term that came out a little bit before then too. Accept Jesus in my heart. You guys remember this? In fact, we, we've used this term, right? Now, I'm not saying it's a horrible term, okay? Like, I'm, I'm not, we're not going to stop, you know, accept Jesus in your heart. We're not going to wear like the Ghostbuster symbol through it. But think about what that portrays. Accept Jesus in your heart versus receive King Jesus, His rule his reign, his authority in your life. There is a fundamental shift 
It goes from, He's my Savior, He saved me from my sins, to, He saved me from my sins and is my King, my Lord, my Sovereign God. That is completely different. And it's not coming out of our mouths because it doesn't produce the same results. Savior Jesus, sometimes even an easy Jesus, just come to Christ, He'll forgive you. Yeah. But we stop. We stop. Friends, Jesus said, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That is why I was sent. What are we doing? What are we doing if we're not communicating the rule and reign of King Jesus? He was sitting right in the midst of the Pharisees. And he was saying, the rule and reign that you have been waiting on, but don't want. You don't want rule, and you don't want reign, and you don't want sovereignty. What you want is you want an access card to wipe out the Romans. What you want is you want some type of religious heightening that will place you on a bigger throne, Pharisees. That's what you want. But what I came to give, whoever would receive it, is rule, reign, and authority by my name's sake. So friends, how about you? Is that really what you want? Have you just been accepting a Savior Jesus, waiting on a Savior Jesus, looking at it as your get-out-of-hell-free card? Literally. Now, I, I, know, I know many of us would be like, well, no, I'm not, I'm not. But think about the way you're thinking about things and communicating about things. Do you wake up every morning just with King Jesus rhetoric just rolling out of your mind? I'm telling you, if you think the kingdom of God is anything but the reign, rule, and sovereignty of Jesus, you're missing the idea of the kingdom through the entire Gospels. And so imagine when he says it's but a mustard seed now. My rule, reign, authority now is but a mustard seed. And here we are as Christians saying, King Jesus, yeah. Here's what I believe. I believe He created because He's sovereign. I believe He died because He rules. I believe He lives because He reigns. And I believe He saves, my friends. I believe He saves, my friends, because He is all-knowing, all-good, and all-sovereign. Everything comes back to His authority. His authority, His rule, and His reign sit on the top of everything. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God that we need to have on our lips. That's the kingdom of God that will break coddling from this room. No, no, no. We're not following some statue of Jesus that sits in Jerusalem. We're following a king who says, I will give you a Holy Spirit as a seal of my reign, rule, and authority in your life. There is a fundamental shift in our life when the Spirit rocks our insides and takes all of it and spills it before the throne. There's a fundamental shift in that from just us thinking that He's just saved us by grace through faith, which He has. So friends, how will we communicate the kingdom of God? How will we teach people about the reign, rule, and sovereignty of Jesus if as His servants we're not humbled before His throne saying, Here I am, send me.
if the world sees prideful Christians sitting in their chairs waiting to receive something, don't you agree that they're getting a wrong picture of kingdom? If the world sees us going through the Christian routine, don't you agree with me that they're getting a wrong picture of what it means to be a servant in the greatest kingdom ever? That same night, uh, as Jesus had earlier beckoned the disciples to pray, uh, he's, he's asking Peter, he's like, hey, it's time to pray, man. Like, we really need to go now to God so that we will not fall into the temptation of sin. Earlier that evening, he took the bread. Friends, think about the scriptures now. As he broke it, and he said, This is my body. He's talking as King Jesus, reigner, ruler, sustainer. This is my body broken for you. I can do this. I can die tonight because I reign. Are you guys with me? I can break my body on a cross because I reign. If he didn't reign, what's his death? If he didn't rule, he won't come back from the dead. Are you guys with me? And so he breaks the bread, knowing full well, look, my dad has called me to do this, and me being fully God, I will go in obedience to the cross because I rule and I reign. Take my body and eat of this in remembrance of me that you would never forget the beauty of the kingdom now, which is me reshaping and retuning and completely overhauling who you are as king. Then he took the cup, a representation of his blood, and he said, this is my blood which will be shed for you. And all these disciples have all these thoughts of what King Jesus is and who He is as God going through their minds. And He said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of Me. A very special meal at a special time. And then that Christ, that King, did go to the cross. And He did die. And three days later, He did raise because He is a King. What does it look like tonight to worship a king and not just a savior? What does it look like tonight to communicate to the world King Jesus and not just Savior God? Friends, it's both. And when the kingdom of God starts to flow on our lips, the world will get a picture of what it is as humble servants to stand and say, here I am. Send me. Tonight you're invited to join us in response by taking this great meal. It's a meal for believers. So if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, and as you realize tonight that He's ruler and reigner over your life, as we take this meal together, you're saying, I want you and desire you, King Jesus, to rule my life, my finances, my sexuality, my need for things, everything about me, I want you to rule it and to reign it. And if you're willing to say that scary prayer and to make that scary confession tonight, I'm telling you, you'll be blessed.
And if you're not a follower tonight of Christ, you don't know Jesus. Let me just share with you that your pornography problem is not an addiction problem. It's a not having Jesus problem. Your drunkenness isn't a drunkenness problem. It's a not having Jesus problem. Your relational um, feelings of loneliness, feelings of depression, it's not a... uh, It's not a depression problem. It's a Jesus problem. He's your only hope, your only answer. And if tonight you just want to journey more, learn more about what it looks like to follow Him as King, I just want to invite you to talk to one of us as pastors. We take communion here by intention. just means you pull off the piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, church. May tonight we respond to King Jesus.